Welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Miles. The Building Excellence Podcast is all about sharing inspiring stories from some of the most successful athletes, coaches, business minds, and thought leaders to help you build excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. We hope this show provides you with tremendous value. If you find the show impactful, please share with a friend and on social media, as well as subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's get to the show and start building excellence in your life, leadership, and legacy. Everyone, welcome to the Building Excellence Podcast. I've got a special guest with me today. We have Baylor head coach, Coach Mike McGraw. Thanks for being on the show, Coach. Great to be here today. I appreciate you having me on. This is uh, an honor. Yeah, well, if you wouldn't mind, kind of give us some context of, you know, your background and what it was like growing up for you. Well, I grew up one of seven children in Ponca City, Oklahoma, which is uh, an oil refining town, if you will. And my dad was the golf professional at the Ponca City Country Club, raising seven kids on a not so such a great salary, honestly. And um, but I enjoyed uh, that childhood. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Uh, you know, my all my brothers and sisters got started in the game at a, about age five. And my dad tried to get me to start at five and I didn't want to do it. And I um, basically faked being sick every Friday so I didn't have to go to junior golf and <laughs> And about four years later, when I decided I wanted to play, I uh, was able to, I, I've spent every day of my life in golf since, since 1969. So. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as you talked about the transition to really wanting to play golf, you know, what, what were the things that led you to kind of ultimately wanting to play golf more and then making it something that you continued on doing? Well, my older brother, Tim, uh, had already become the best junior golfer in Oklahoma for his age group. He was two and a half, almost three years older than I was. And I would see him coming back home when he would take these trips to junior golf tournaments. He'd always have a trophy with him. And he just had created like a, a, a big part of our, uh, my mom's sewing room had all the trophies on top of the, on top of this huge old black piano we had. And I just kept on seeing him bring trophies and put them in that, in that room. And I thought, well, I need to do that. And so it kind of got me interested thinking if Tim can do that, maybe I can do the same. And so that's how I got the initial interest. And then obviously my dad being the, the club pro, uh, I had a ride to the golf course every day. So yeah, yeah. Makes it, makes it nice. Did you play yeah. any other sports growing up or was golf kind of the primary thing that you played? Well, I, I played baseball for a year or so and, and became the team manager and team scorekeeper. So I did well at that part of it. <laughs> yeah. And in basketball, I was, it's a long, long story about my basketball career, but it was relatively short and uh, not, not really illustrious whatsoever. Okay. I was fast. The one thing I've had in my athletic life is foot speed. I had it when I was young and was a runner as well. And, but I never ran competitively. Well, I ran a little bit competitively, but not much. Um, so I really was just a runner for recreation and to stay in shape but I could do nothing else athletic and golf was just, you just hit enough practice balls. You could eventually figure that out. I thought, but if I had it to do over again, I would be a great athlete and take up the game of golf. Gotcha. Yeah. Well talk about the influence of, of your parents, obviously your dad was a golf pro. So that, that was something that you guys shared in common, but uh, what was it like uh, for you having, having parents, what were the things that you look back and, and take as things that you learned from them? Well, the, the main thing, it's pretty easy to see, is well, do right, for one, but they both worked very, very hard. Uh, when you had 
seven children and my dad's salary wasn't great. And, you know, my mom was a stay at home mom until I was almost eight or nine years old. And then she decided to go and help my dad merchandise the golf shop. And honestly, they retired about 12 years later because of that. Um, but I just think work ethic it, I mean, I was up this morning at about 4.45 and I was in the office and wrote 20 letters to donors and was preparing for this podcast, but just had a meeting with my assistant coach. I mean, I just don't understand uh, anything but work. I think it's great now. And and when it's obsessed, when I'm obsessed with it and it's tipped over into uh, like an obsession, then it's a bad thing. But I just think work does a man good. I've always believed that. And I think that if you kind of take that attitude, then you'll never be lazy. You'll never, ever be a drain on society. I don't want to do that. So I want to add to society. And I think through you know, meaningful work, uh, you, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So as you look back, uh, when you're playing golf in high school, was that something that came easy for you because of the examples that you had in front of you to work hard every single day at golf to have an opportunity to go play college? Well, working came easy to me. I didn't mind the work and I put it in, you know, I would go to school every morning from seventh grade on uh, with like a golf glove in my back pocket that I forgot and uh, grass clippings on my jeans. I mean, I was practicing before, uh, before I went to school every day. And so the work part came easy. The good golf part didn't come very easy. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know what I was working at or why I was working. I just knew that I was working hard. And so one of the things my dad taught me and my mom was the work ethic is hugely important, but now that I've become a coach and have been a coach for about 35 years, I've realized a very intentional, very smart work is way, way more important. And if I had it to do over again, that's one thing I would change about my career is I would work with more intentionality uh, and just with more purpose. I just worked. And so hard work came easy. Uh, good golf did not. So okay. <laughs> there you go. Okay. So how did you wind up at UCO, correct? I did. Well, I actually went one year to Odessa Junior College and played for Barry Rodenhaver out there and uh, and then transferred to uh, Central Oklahoma, which at the time was Central State. It was an NAIA school at the time. It's now a Division II school. But, um, you know, being in Edmond, that was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me was going to Central Oklahoma. I was able to get a job at Kicking Bird Golf Course working for Art Proctor. Uh, Art was a good friend of my dad's. Art was a club professional as well. And actually, Art is going to be inducted later this month into the Oklahoma Golf Hall of Fame. I couldn't be more proud. I will be at the induction ceremony. Um, and Art, Art taught me a lot. He taught me a lot about uh, just the game of golf. He was a wonderful instructor, but he also taught me um, at some point, he made me realize that, you know, maybe coaching is what I could do. I wasn't quite a good enough player to play for a living. And I think Art was one of the biggest reasons I got into coaching, but that happened in Edmond when I went to Central Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Well, and what, if you look back on some of his qualities, what were the things that he did really well as a coach? Well, one thing he did was he was a great, he was great around the greens. So he, he focused on short game a lot. And I, I got really good around the greens. I had been pretty good as a kid growing up around the greens. I kind of made it my specialty. Uh, Art was uh, a gamer, if you will. He, you know, he actually played some tour golf and some senior tour golf and was actually a wonderful player. Uh, And so he he showed me that. I think he taught me to be a better player. But um, one thing he did was he encouraged me to uh, look into this 
coaching aspect of life. And it, it's like, I've never looked back. I've, I've never really thought I should be a player again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, you have kind of a, a unique story where you're at UCO, you get into high school athletics as a coach and talk about how you transitioned into coaching and, and started in high school. Well, I mean, through Art's example, you know, he run the junior program. I ran his junior golf program. So I was already working with young kids on the golf or at, at Kicking Bird that would eventually be on the high school golf team. And Mark Maids, who was the high school coach at the time, uh, he enlisted my sort of expertise or help or whatever with the team. Uh, he wasn't a golfer. And so, you know, he saw that I had an interest in helping. And so he let me travel with the team and and that's kind of how I got into the actual coaching part of it was Mark Maids at Edmond High School. And so I did that for a couple of years. Then Mark retired. And then I became the assistant to Rick Leith. And then I eventually, when I got a teaching degree, became the head coach at Edmond North High School. So I, I was involved with junior golf and the high school golf program for a long time before I ever became a head coach. And then uh, obviously before I got into college coaching. Yeah, was college coaching on your radar at the time, or were you just trying to be good at what you were doing and you just were immersed in, in uh, junior golf? Yeah, I wasn't thinking about coaching in college. I didn't think about it at all. A good friend of mine who I'd caddied for as a boy was Mike Holder, who was the golf coach at Oklahoma State. And, um, you know, I never even dreamed I'd ever work for Mike or work with Mike. Uh, but one day he asked me, and I, so I wasn't thinking about being a college coach. And one day he asked me to work his golf camp. And I thought, wow, that'd be great. So he asked me to send him sort of a short little resume and a photo for the golf camp brochure that he was going to mail out to the junior golfers. And in the meantime, before I sent it back to him, I, I talked to my wife, Pam, and we'd only been married about two weeks. And I said, how would, what would you think about me being a college golf coach? And she said, in her mind, well, you're a high school coach and a school teacher. So surely college golf <laughs> would be lucrative financially. She had no idea they had a, a cap on what you could pay assistant coaches in small sports in those days was $16,000 a year. I didn't divulge okay. that, initially, <laughs> but I did, I did call up Mike and say, Hey, I've sent that information to you for the brochure. Would love to uh, also talk to you about being your assistant coach after the golf camp. I'll just stay. And he didn't, he wasn't convinced that that needed to happen. Okay. He didn't think he needed an assistant in those days, in the mid 1990s, probably less than half the college teams had assistant coaches. He had had one before, and his his assistant coach, Bruce Hepler, had taken the job at Georgia Tech. Mike had been doing it for another year, year and a half without an assistant. He thought he could do it. But anyway, uh, that's when I decided I wanted to become a college coach was uh, Mike Holder invited me to work his camp. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't want to dismiss the high school. How has it been different um, coaching high school players to the transition to coaching college I mean, obviously, there's a lot of things that are different, but at the same time, what, what, are, what are those differences? Well, the main difference that I saw initially was uh, in college, you got to go recruit the players you wanted or you thought you wanted. Yeah. In high school, you just took the players that were, you know, in the local community. Those were the players at your golf course. Those are the guys you, you, you took. So you had, you had no choice of who you got, but what you did with, with after that was kind of the main thing. Since I ran the junior golf program at Kicking Bird, uh, I kind of had a built-in relationship with the families. So I would get to know those kids at age 9, 10, 11, 12. And then they would come all the way through the junior high and high school golf teams. And then I saw them graduate high school and go on to college. So I got to see more than just a short period of time. I got to see a whole junior career 
and then on to their college career and beyond. Um, the players you get in college, especially at the division one level, even more so at the power five conference level, you get kids that are highly motivated to want to play professional golf. The kids in seventh grade at Edmond high school, Edmond middle school might say they want to do that, but really they, they have no idea what it takes. And honestly, at the time, I didn't know much about what it took either. I sort of knew and had played a little mini tour golf and kind of had an idea. But the truth is you have, not less motivated kids, but they don't dream quite as big because they don't know how to get there. They don't know what the steps are. And most high school coaches kind of struggle with that, getting kids to, to think they could play in Division One golf and beyond. So that was the main difference, just the type of athlete you're working with. Now, coaching is coaching. And so I, I firmly believe that it's still just getting somebody to believe that they could be something they didn't know they could become. That's kind of what coaching is. And that's what I tried to do at both levels. Mm -hmm. how, how challenging is that to get kids to believe? Well, it's really hard when you consider uh, I couldn't do it for myself when I was a player. And so you, you recognize that you realize that and you say to yourself, well, okay. Uh, all right. What were some of the things that I left on the table that I could have done? I'll have these young men do those things. And when you're, when you're talking about a collegiate athlete, I think the biggest thing you can do for these guys is hold them accountable because every kid on my team that I have currently stated in recruiting, and they've stated it multiple times since, that they want to play professional golf. And accountability is huge. And so really, honestly, the only time I feel like I've let players down as a coach is when I didn't hold them accountable. Um, I never apologize because I asked them to do something that would improve them. I've never apologized for that. I don't have to, mm -hmm. but I have apologized to players when it's obvious I didn't hold them accountable to a dream they said they had. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, as you look back through your story, you can see you have uh, people that exemplify hard work and work ethic that you've been able to apply in your life, not just as a, as a coach, but as a player too. And then you transition into, <clears throat> excuse me, high school into college. And one thing that I see is, is you went and you asked and you showed intent to coach Holder, like you wanted to get into college, college coaching, because sometimes if you don't state what you'd like to be doing, people don't know you want to do it. And so you did that. And then obviously it kind of opened the door up for Oklahoma state. Talk about that experience getting to Oklahoma state. Well, I grew up 40 miles North of Stillwater, Oklahoma. So I always had, you know, a great love for Oklahoma State University and all the athletics teams. I went to football games uh, set in section N on the north side of that stadium. It's on the very top level and that that kind of rickety fence they had on the back of that. I mean, I can't believe I didn't fall through to, to my death. <laughs> but I, I remember those times watching games. I remember Oklahoma State beating Colorado, who was number one ranked in the country, 31 to three in 1972. Uh, early in the season. I, I mean, I've got great memories of young, um, when I was young, of, of Oklahoma State Athletics. Greer Jones and Mark Hayes were two of my biggest heroes, and most people today don't know who they are, but they are they were OSU golf heroes and, uh, and great players and NCAA champions and first-team All-Americans. So I always had a great love for Oklahoma State, and uh, I always thought that if I ever got into coaching or Actually, I didn't think that. I always thought it would be cool to coach at Oklahoma State, but never considered it. You know, I knew Mike Holder. I had caddied for him as a boy and when he would play in my dad's tournament. So 
having said all that, it's like, yeah, this was like my New York Yankees job. Getting yeah. even becoming an assistant coach was an amazing opportunity. And I remember uh, that first semester thinking to myself, man, I'm actually here. I can't believe this. And I was 37 years old. I was probably the oldest assistant coach in college golf. And, and, but I didn't feel old. I, I was, you know, revitalized. I was excited. I was motivated. I was mm -hmm. re-energized. I, I was working for the all-time legend in college golf and I knew I would learn some things. So the transition was easy because it was only 40 miles. And um, by the way, I got to coach one player at Oklahoma state that first year who actually played for me at Edmond high school. And that was Jay tool. Okay. Jay tool whose father, Doug played golf at Oklahoma state. Jay um, was a fifth year senior that first year I was at Oklahoma state. Wow. Yeah. Well <clears throat> talk about how you also, you step into an assistant role at Oklahoma state, which is kind of the New York Yankees job for you. What was it like to go from a head coach to an assistant um, and, and transitioning that a little bit? Well, I, I didn't mind it one bit because I knew I was going to be learning so much. And I assumed that Mike Holder could get me a job at a, a division one school, you know, within a year or two. And so it was all the, about the excitement of, okay, I may not be a head coach anymore, but I'm in a spot here where I can learn a lot. And so, you know, and here it is 25 years later, I'm 61. So it's almost 25 years later. And I think I'm in just as good a learning stage right now as I was then. And I think that's one of the keys, two keys to me, if I just want, if we can just summarize this entire podcast, two keys okay. that would be really, really important. One is never stop learning. Just keep learning all the time. And number two, keep an enthusiasm at a high level, even with all the disappointments that you may suffer and all the different things that happen. If you can do those two things, stay excited and love what you do, and also keep learning and keep an open mind. It's like, I don't know how you couldn't get better over time if you did those things. Now, it doesn't mean I'm perfect and I'm a, I'm a work in progress, but there I was, it was summer of 1997 and I was thinking, I'm getting ready to learn so much, I can't wait. Interestingly enough, Mike Holder didn't just sit down every day and teach me. <laughs> Most of his teaching happened in the way he handled things and the way he did things and the decisions he made and the things he said to players. It's like, he told me, I'll never forget this. And I, this has been documented in that book that I wrote, but on the very first day he was getting ready to go recruiting and we had just worked golf camp together and he was not going to see me maybe four or five days that summer. He said, I don't know what to tell you to do McGraw. You're going to have to figure out some things to do this summer while I'm gone. But I will tell you this, I'm going to be the bad cop and you're going to be the good cop. I'm going to cut them off at the knees and you're going to put your arm around them and make them feel good about being short. <laughs> in other words <clears throat> he told me what my job was day one essentially you're going to have to support everything i do and say and make these kids feel good about it i've got the rough edges you you're going to smooth those off you're going to be the the good cop i'm the bad cop so he went through all that but he didn't give me a list of these are the things i'm going to teach you and honestly uh i'm glad he didn't i'm glad looking back on it that i had to kind of look for myself and try to figure things out and honestly everything you learn something from everybody every single day you might learn what not to do and there's some things mike did that i would never do as a coach but most of what i was observing i would still think is valuable today and i love it today so anyway that was the thing i was in a learning stage and i was working for a guy who wasn't just going to teach it and map it out for me he just said you've got to 
observe and see how you what you think. Yeah, just kind of figuring it out sometimes is, is one of the best ways of learning. Also, watching someone model it is, is, is really critical as well, not just as a coach, but as a player, being able to watch someone and, and model that. It helps when you can visualize things. But um, as you look back at that experience, you talked about there was a lot that you got to learn. What are some of the positive things you got to learn from him that really stand out to you that you've carried over in your own coaching? Well, the, the best thing he ever taught me was the value of confrontation. And I've told people this before, and they say, how could that be the best thing he taught you? Well, you know, everybody wants to know where they stand, and especially a student athlete. Where do I stand with this coach? You know, and so he, he taught me never be wishy-washy. Uh, you need to deal with things. If you don't deal with things, they're going to fester up, and eventually you've got to deal with something that's way worse. So he taught me the value of confrontation and, and taking things head on. And it doesn't mean that the way I confront things would look like the way he confronts things. I don't have the same personality. There's no way I'll ever be as intimidating as Mike could be. I, I can't do that. And it would be fake if I tried. But he taught me the value of confrontation, the value of being very direct and honest and forthright and, and true. I never had to worry about where I stood with Mike. And neither did the players, by the way. Yeah. Would you say you're naturally good at being able to handle that? Or was it something you had to work on? Oh my goodness. I was not good at it at all. Okay. I, I was a, a popular high school golf coach. The kids liked me. The parents liked me. Uh, I, I ran the junior golf foundation, created a junior golf foundation. Just, I was like this little, I don't know, Pied Piper or whatever, you know. <laughs> but I never really confronted things. Um, we had such a good program and a, such a good team all the time, every year that it was like, there weren't that many stressful moments. And there were a few, but they're not that many. So it was easy for me to sidestep confrontation. It was easy for me to sidestep being direct. And um, I think when I went to work for Mike, I realized he's just very honest with people. He looks them straight in the eye and tells them what he thinks. And, you know, he, he told players and he told me this early on, you know, Mike, I'm not always going to say the right thing, but I have to say something to change your actions, the way you're operating, the what you're doing. I have to say something. I can't just let you go. So it might not be the right thing. Be prepared for that. And so I know today that when I say something to a kid, I want what I say to have intentionality. I want it to make an impact, but it might be the wrong thing that day for that particular kid in that certain situation. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. The idea is, is he taught me that it's important to go ahead and do it because if you don't, you just let things go and things slide. And I, I don't want things to slide. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you talked to about, um, you know, confrontation right there. You talked earlier about accountability, being able to hold people accountable. And a lot of times that means confrontation sometimes where uh, you have standards that you have to set and you have to keep people accountable and confront them about some things that maybe they need to, to work on. And so that's something that I think many people, I would assume, <laughs> It's not necessarily something that comes just naturally easily for most people to be uh, confrontational, but uh, just daily exercises of getting better at it, but doing it with a, a kind of a authenticity to yourself and who you are, uh, having a care, care uh, like not charismatic, but caring mentality towards that person, knowing that you care for them. Uh, I think that makes probably a difference, I would assume, correct? It does. And, and see, that's part of what I didn't learn from Mike. Mike was old school. He was, he was from a time and an era when uh, the kids didn't have swing instructors. The kids didn't have, you know, golf trainers, people that trained them, worked with them. So Mike had what you would call credibility through his position, his position. 
and he was also very successful, hugely successful already. So he didn't, he didn't have to earn that with the kids. He already had the credibility coming in. Nowadays, you kind of almost have to earn it a little bit. You have to do a little bit more to get them to understand, okay, I am an expert. I've done this for a long time. Listen to me. Nowadays, they come in pretty sophisticated. So I'm not sure Mike would be as effective today with his style of coaching, uh, but he would find a way, and I think he would evolve if he did start to coach again today. But what I'm saying is I had uh, I had a personality that wouldn't lend itself toward, you know, intimidating a kid or tearing a kid down in front of his teammates or whatever might happen in, in the old style of coaching back in the day. Mm-hmm. And so you said earlier, be authentic to who you are. I completely agree with that. And I think every young coach ought to think on those lines. It's like, who am I? What do I believe? How do I want to do this? Why am I doing this? And then coach to that. Yeah, that, that's some great advice right there. Well, let's hop into your, your time at Oklahoma State. You're an assistant, and then you, you jump into the head coaching position, which you'd been a head coach before, but this was at Oklahoma State, which is kind of the New York Yankees job to you, but it's one of the best uh, golf programs in the country. And so what was that like, um, going from an assistant to a head coach and being on, on, on the top there? When Mike offered me that job, I was stunned because – on the very first day I ever interviewed with him when I was still at Edmund North High School, he told me, there's two things, Mike. I'm not going to train you to go be my competition. So I, if I give you this job as an assistant coach, you can't go straight to Oklahoma or Texas from this job. You can go someplace else and end up at those places all you want, and I'll help you get a job someplace else. But I need there to be you know, a one-off, if you will, something yeah. in between you and that other school. And the number two is you'll never be the golf coach at Oklahoma State. So don't get any wild ideas. It's not going to happen. My replacement, he said, my replacement will be an alum. And I said, Mike, I have no, you know, none. This is a great opportunity for me and I'm going to take advantage of it. So thank you very much. And then eight years later, when he became the athletic director, his first hire as a coach was me. So I didn't take that for granted. I didn't take it lightly. And I was scared to death the first day because I thought there's a lot of history, like no other golf history in all of collegiate golf. There are hundreds and hundreds of alums and donors that are very interested in what we do. There are tons of people that don't think I should have this job. There are tons of people who are unhappy with Mike Holder because he gave me this job. So there's a lot here going on and a lot going through my head. And so the very first thing I I thought was, okay, I can't be just a Mike Holder clone. That won't work because nobody will believe it. So I've got to figure out how to be me. And I started that way very well, very well. I was me from the start. And, you know, honestly, we had a great year that first year. We won the national championship. And um, I had some really good recruits that were going to be coming to the, to the program the next couple of years. So I felt like I had, uh, by having gotten that monkey off my back early, and by, you know, that's just Mike McGraw. That's just who he is. And nobody thought I was faking anything. Now, I would tell you, as the years went by, and as pressure went up and as the uh, results weren't quite as good those last couple of years, I wasn't the same guy as I was before. So that, that part was tough, but I went in, no eyes wide open, knowing this is a big deal. I've got to figure this out and I've got to be myself. Yeah. It's kind of funny. You have that first meeting with coach Holder and and you'll never be the head coach of Oklahoma state. And then (laughs) you wound up becoming the head coach. So it's like almost one of those things, never say never, but you, you have some great, great success at Oklahoma state. Uh, I do want to talk because I've heard you talk about it before, but talk about just kind of that pressure that you have 
uh, dealing with expectations and all these things that come about. Um, how did you, how did you go about handling expectations? And really at the start there, whenever you first started, because they had a lot of success beforehand too. And as a new head coach, you said you had people that didn't want you to be head coach. You had people that did, but you know, there's a lot of different things there. There's excitement, I'm sure, to be the head coach. There might be a little bit of, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want boards and maybe fear or things that, you know, doubt. What was that like? And how did you deal with that? Well, because I grew up 40 miles from the program, because I knew all the history of the program, because I knew all of that, and because I knew the enormity of the fact that Mike Holder handed me his baby. So all of that was reeling through my head. And all I did was I just dove into the work. I think I recruited 116 days on the road, 116 nights on the road that year, the first year. And my wife really couldn't understand why I was doing it, but I, I wasn't going to erase the 32 years of Mike Holder's career, but that was 32 years of the same man running the program. So I needed those kids, those junior golfers, those alums, those donors, I needed those people to see my face and see who, who was leading the program at the time. So I didn't have time to be nervous. I just had time to dive into the work, and that's what I did. The, so anyway, that's what I did my first year. And fortunately, we had a good team, and fortunately, we figured out a way to win the national championship. But I dove into the work, and it was all about the recruiting to start with. And Yeah, from- absolutely. And you talked about you know work ethic beforehand. So it, that it was probably easy for to dive into the work and get to work and, and not want to uh, I mean, just keep the program going in the right direction, which you were doing for sure. Um, what was it like on the recruiting side? You know, what were the guys that you look for and still look for today at Baylor? Like what are those qualities? Um, obviously a great golfer, but the intangibles, the things that you look for to build the culture that you want to establish. Well, you're looking for people with high character to begin with. And when you lose balance because you're just trying to get the best player and character doesn't matter, then you've probably lost your way. And I think at some point I probably did that at Oklahoma state where it was just, I had quit putting character at the forefront and it just became, I've got to get the best player I can get here regardless. And I'm not saying I recruited low character kids. I'm just saying I didn't consider it at that point. It wasn't something I was looking at. And when you do that, you're probably not getting the best fit that you could have at Baylor. I I literally know there's a huge group of kids that are good enough to help our team. I know that. And then I whittle that down immediately because they have to be a good student. And then I whittle that even further because of those kids that are left, I'm going to vet it out big time. I'm going to find out what kind of work ethic they have. I'm going to find out uh, how they treat their parents. I'm going to see how they treat coaches. I'm going to see how all of this looks because not that I have my pick. I don't have the pick of the litter, but I at least want the kids who I think could thrive under my leadership. If I'd have done a little bit better job of that, at Oklahoma State, instead of just looking at the talent, I might have been able to weather the storm. But, but ultimately, in my opinion, it was me allowing that job, the weight of the job, the weight of the expectations to just suffocate me. That's, that's why I ended up losing that job. And did I have a good record at Oklahoma State? Sure, no doubt about it. And everybody can look at that. That the record speaks for itself, whatever it is. But uh, I think if you look back on it, even the great years, even the really great years, I wasn't enjoying myself. And I didn't get into coaching to become uh, a coach of the year or the national champion or Hall of Fame. I didn't get into coaching for any of that. At Edmond High School, I got into coaching to help kids achieve dreams that I wasn't able to achieve and to help them just be better people. And that was the purity of it initially. But like anything else, it can get uh, it can get tainted. 
Yeah, absolutely. I've heard you touch on that before. Was it at, at Oklahoma State uh, towards the end of your years there? Was it something that you noticed in the moment? Because uh, obviously you had some some time to reflect and look back. But was it something that you saw in the moment, or did it slowly kind of creep up on you? Uh, like anything else, it, it's a slow creeping process, little by little, little by little, you just finally get yourself to that dark place. And so I wasn't aware of it, but my wife, Pam, was very aware of it. And we had just mismatched play at nationals in 2013. And I literally that we got home that night and I met with Mike Holder and Mike was not happy with the situation with the team. We should have made match playing. We didn't. And the next morning at 6.30, I'm on the first tee at Kickingbird Golf Course watching the state junior championship. I mean, I couldn't even give myself a break. And that day at 11.59, so almost noon, Pam sent me this letter and it said, Mike, I'm sending this to you because I think some points need to be brought to your attention without a defensive reaction. I know better than anyone how hard you work. It's going to take you some time to get over the NCAA and this past season's disappointments because it's branded in your photographic memory. I know you would tell me I have moved on. The fact is I'm on the outside observing. You work hard at masking it. Your face, your body language, and your speech all tell a different story. Maybe more so at home when you don't have to give a reason or a hope for next year. This is all okay, but recognize it, accept it, and take advice from scripture below. And the scripture says, be still and know that I'm God. And she basically, I was, she wasn't getting very good reactions when we would have personal conversations. And that night before I was a complete wreck and she sent me that email and that email, I just read from the inside of my current year's journal. I've put that in every single journal for the last nine years. And the point is, is she was making me aware that I was going away from my Christian values that were important to me. I was going away from the original idea of why I got into coaching to begin with. And it wasn't anybody's fault, but mine, I created that. And so um, I, I'm just thankful she sent that email. It woke me up. And two weeks later, I'd been fired. And two weeks and one day later, I went to work for my, uh, for JC well, the university of Alabama. So I've, I've been better off since. Yeah, absolutely. Well, just, you talked about having people around you uh, that make you better. And obviously she just kind of called out what she saw and you still have it to this very day, which I'm sure kind of helps guide you uh, through where you've been before. And obviously, let's talk about you get a chance to go to Alabama um, right after you had gotten let go to Oklahoma State. What was that year like? And how was it? Uh, how did you use that year to help retool your mind to reshape what you were thinking and, and to kind of go back to the love of just coaching and having that passion for for being a coach? Well, first of all, I have uh, JC will to thank you know I had Mike Holder to thank for giving me the opportunity to get into college coaching I'll never ever be able to repay him enough for that and uh, you know I am grateful for that opportunity I was really grateful also when JC will call me up the day after I got fired and actually 45 minutes after it was announced on the internet to come to work with him and he used the word with not for and so I went to work with JC well he treated me like an equal for an entire year we had an amazing team, but we had just a great time. Our offices were right next to each other, and, and we had so much fun in that office every day. He reminded me that coaching is fun. He reminded me that, you know, you, you're, this isn't just a business. This can be a lot of fun, and you can have a lot of fun uh, inspiring young men to do, be the best they can be. Jay gave me an, an invigorating 
kind of shot in the arm, if you will, for 11 and a half months of what it feels like to really enjoy what you're doing. Um, I, I can't ever thank Jay enough for what he did for my career because I don't think I would be coaching today if it hadn't been for Jay kind of, he wasn't charity. It was just, hey, I wanna work with my friend and I want to uh, enjoy time together. And we did. I keep on telling him, we won the national championship and you fired me the next day. And he says, no, <laughs> you quit. So that's still up for, uh, up for uh, debate. Yes. And for those that don't know, you were in a unique position uh, when you were over there. You guys won the national championship at Alabama that year, but you happened to compete against your former team at Oklahoma State. Like All those guys that you had coached or recruited were on the other side of, of you know, of the coin there. And, and just, I guess, talk about the emotion behind that, because obviously, you know, you're coaching for Alabama, but still these are guys that you, you deeply love and care for as well. Yeah, I, I cried twice that day, once for Alabama and the incredible, you know, just tears of joy and just like, this is the greatest thing ever. And I cried for those Oklahoma State kids because I love them so much and uh, still keep in touch with all of them today. Um, that was a uh, bittersweet. I was pulling for Alabama, make no mistake about it. You know, I was at Alabama and I was trying to win a national championship that day with Jay Sewell and the boys. But the truth is, uh, it hurt a lot when uh, I saw the disappointment on those kids' faces because, you know, Wyndham Clark and Jordan Niebergi and Ian Davis and Taylor Gooch and uh, the entire team was just an amazing group of guys. And, you know, I'm thankful. And Zach, uh, Zach Olson, who I didn't get to coach, but I had recruited. The, you know, that was a tough deal. I doubt very many coaches are ever going to get the opportunity to be in that position. So I was aware of that when it happened. But I also wanted that day to be about the kids. It wasn't about me. Uh, the Golf Channel needed a sidebar story, so obviously they used it. But I would say that um, the fact that two great teams met in the finals, probably the best two teams met in the finals, was uh, was a pretty nice opportunity for history anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it kind of goes to the type of person you are and your character about you just care about the, the kids that you coach and the people that are around you. Um, it's not necessarily for your, you in the spotlight, but it's more so about the kids. And I think that's um, I'm assuming a big reason why you've had success everywhere you've been is because you care for your, the guys that you coach. So, well, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you know, you go from Alabama and then now you're at Baylor talk about kind of getting a fresh start to be a head coach at Baylor and what that's been like for you. Well, you know, there's, there's always going to be a honeymoon, you know, opportunity when uh, a new coach comes in, you know, the kids are all excited Everybody in the program's excited. They've got a new coach. Let's see what, what he can do. And so, but I had spent the year before, prior to that kind of preparing for that moment. And I re remember being in, in that office, the assistant coach's office in Alabama, thinking to myself, I've got about a year because I'll probably be an assistant coach for a year and then maybe some head coaching jobs come available. But however long I have, I want to spend this time kind of reintroducing myself to the coach that was a good coach at one time, not the uh, shell of a man that showed up in Tuscaloosa. And so I spent that year writing a journal called Stuff That Works. And I just started writing down things that I thought I would want to take forward to a head coaching position someday. Um, and I, I wrote for an entire year. And when I got in that office in Baylor, in Waco, Texas, on the first day on the job, we're getting ready to have team practice. And I thought to myself, I need to close finally the door at Oklahoma State and so I wrote Mike Holder a, a 
a letter of thanks for everything he'd ever taught me, everything he'd ever did, and mainly for the opportunity to coach. And um, Mike and I have a great relationship today, I, and partly because I believe both of us kind of met in the middle, and I definitely forgave him, and I thanked him. And I think gratitude is one of the greatest qualities a human being can have. And um, I was able to show it there to Mike, and it helped our relationship. We've got a great relationship today. But I'm at Alabama, or I'm come from Alabama to Waco, and I am so excited to be here. I've inherited this team that Greg Priest left behind. Great students, awesome kids, and I just knew I was excited. And we went out and won our first tournament by 16 shots, and I thought <laughs> this is easy, <laughs> but uh, it obviously isn't that easy. But uh, I've enjoyed my time here at Baylor. It's been a blast. Yeah, well, I definitely want to touch on that story because it's very challenging for people to forgive. And I know, obviously, said gratitude. How do you have gratitude uh, in a situation where it didn't necessarily uh, continue on the way that you would have liked it to, probably? But being able to look back, have gratitude, say thank you to Coach Holder, um, who gave you the job, but also had to let you go, and and talk about that level of gratitude and forgiveness, because I think that's something that is is really fundamental for many people to listen to. Gratitude is a, an appealing quality, and I, I think it's appealing because. It, we're getting ready to have a, a in a couple of weeks uh, what I consider to be one of the great holidays in the world, and that is Thanksgiving in the United States. And it, it all it does is give us a time. We should do it every day, but it gives us a, a day we designate. This is a time to be thankful for all we have. And we've got a lot of problems in this society today. There's this world's pretty pretty torn up right now. But I'm still thankful of all I've got. And so I was definitely grateful and thankful for that opportunity Mike had given me. But forgiveness is just a little bit different. I'm releasing a burden. I, I take the burden of being bitter and angry and upset and mad, and this was unfair and blah, blah, blah. It wasn't. Even if it was, I want to release that so I get to go be the best version of me, whatever that is. And so gratefulness obviously is awesome because you are not looking past things people have done for you, but forgiving actually releases this heavy, heavy burden that I would have felt and would still have today, but I don't have that at all. You know, I look back on it and I think, uh, I, I know this, my, my photos, my pictures, my image is on the walls at Karsten Creek in that trophy display. Uh, you know, and I'm thankful that Mike has put those up there because you can't erase that. That was a time in my career that I'll always be thankful for. But again, forgiveness, you just release a burden. Yeah, that's that's great stuff right there. We'll talk about, I guess, what does routine look like for you? You said you you today, this this very day, you woke up early, you got to the office, you're writing donors, you had a meeting with your assistant coach already. Um what does routine look like and has it been beneficial for you as you develop good habits or what does that look like in, in your realm? Well, I, I think good habits, um, or my assistant coach told me a while back and I love this quote. He said, success leaves clues. And uh, I think when you dive deep into it, if you're going to have success, there has to be things that lead to that. So we talked about it earlier in this podcast about hard work and being disciplined and why that's important. Uh, I haven't lost that. I still want that. I still believe in that. But, but also being more, uh, showing more ingenuity. And so you hire a young millennial like Mikel Andreessen, and Mikel is really, really smart, unbelievably creative, and he keeps me sharp. So, you know, at 61, I could be sort of in a little kind of cruise control mode, 
but I'm not. And I, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I'm trying to think about what are things that I could do today to make me better. And so we have a team practice this afternoon. It's off season, but we get four hours of skill instruction a week. We're going to do some, some of that one hour of that today. I'm excited about it. It's a player led uh, deal. So one of our players in the team will be leading it. He's got to meet with us beforehand to tell us what he's working on, why he's going to do it, what he hopes to accomplish with this practice. It's like, I never would have thought that way years and years ago. It's my way or the highway. This is the golf coach. I'm the one with all the, you know, it's like Mikel's made me and, and Ryan Blagg before him, Ryan's now the head golf coach at Louisville, but Mikel has made me understand being creative, thinking outside the box, if you will, if that's a term, it, it's helped me. So I'm in a learning stage at 61. I think I can coach another 10 years. And I believe firmly that I should be the best I've ever been the last day I coach. Now that's kind of counterintuitive and most people wouldn't believe that. I believe it. Why, why wouldn't you be the best you've ever been the last day you get to coach? Yeah, absolutely. And it goes back to the kind of the two things you were talking about before is just being a lifelong learner and having enthusiasm for what you're doing. So obviously you talked about having an assistant, but do you try to surround yourself with people that kind of help you elevate and become more of a lifelong learner and having more enthusiasm around you? Is that pretty critical? Absolutely critical. And that person is not afraid to tell you their opinion on something. But that also requires me to set an environment where they would feel comfortable doing that. So if, if, if I tell them in some words, yeah, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say, but I never, ever take any of their suggestions. I never, ever, you know, give them credit for what they're doing. It's like, why would I even say anything to him? He doesn't listen to me anyway. So I have to have an environment that would allow that. And then if you take that back to your team, then you, you allow an environment where the, the guys say, coach, this is the way I do it. And this is why I do it wow, we could use that on this team. Let's do that. And regardless of the struggles the team may be having or whatever, you want an environment where people can feel free to share what they know or what they believe. And good ideas like that make us all better. Absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me, but you kind of see how you, as a coach, you've developed and adapted different ideas and, and, and established that type of mentality in your program. But real quickly, as we kind of wind down, what what distinguishes uh, the players that you've coached, some of the great ones that allow them to be able to kind of to set the bar up and have a little more success than most? What are those things that, that you can see? I've always said this and believe this. If you could cut somebody right down the sternum and open up their chest, the guys who have went on to play professional golf and have succeeded and done great things, and inside them, the DNA just says, I'm a golfer. And they just don't know any different. And there's one young man, Garrett May, who just missed out on the second stage of tour school. I bet if I cut him open and you saw it, you look in there, he was a great math student, a really good student at Baylor. He's all those things, but he's a golfer. That's what he does. That's what he's going to be. And so I think that kind of sets those guys apart. But, um, but I also believe that even when you, you uh, try and fail and do not become a professional golfer, if you've had great discipline in that effort, in that endeavor, that discipline uh, trans, uh, transfixed, goes over to the other side and it works in business and it works in everything you do. I assume you're a pretty disciplined guy. Well, um, that would work in any endeavor, anything. So I don't believe there's a difference between the discipline it takes to be a great player like Ricky Fowler or just a, a great businessman like uh, name, name a kid that I've got that I've coached in the past who's now working for a living. It's like 
those things are not mutually exclusive. They work mm -hmm. together. So that's what I think the main thing is, is a, a high self-belief and a discipline. And I'm going to be a golfer. That's what I'm going to do. Yeah. And all those things translate into the different avenues of life for sure. Like you touched on. Well, also real quickly, as we kind of wind down, you got to write a book, you have a podcast. Uh, the book is called better than I found it. The podcast is better than I found it. Talk about kind of the inception of that, why you did it and, and uh, what that's about. I think it might sound a little corny better than I found it to a lot of people that oh, better than I found it. You know, that's, but that was my dad's probably best quote he ever gave me um, as a boy he said, I don't care what you do when you walk in a room, just leave it better than you found it. And he meant physically, spiritually, emotionally, just in every possible way that room should be better when you leave. So I haven't always done that, but I, there's always been a great attempt to do that. And I think my dad left this world better than he found it. And um, that's what the podcast is about. I want every listener, whether they're listening to um, a PGA Tour player or a guy who didn't play the PGA Tour, a, a current coach, a former coach, whatever it is, whatever guest I have on there, the, the goal is not to figure out some controversial thing about this person or bring something up. The goal is that whatever that person says and shares and whatever our podcast shares that day is that it leaves the world of college golf or just period the world a little better than it was before. It's kind of a simple little recipe if you think about it. <laughs> yeah, no, but it does. It absolutely does. And, and your book's done that. The podcast does that. Real quickly, you touched on faith. How has faith shaped your life? And what does that mean? Well, it's been everything since I was a sophomore in college. And um, the, the times when my life has been bad is when that faith has kind of taken a, a backseat. And so, again, whether it's work or expectations or whatever, when, when that takes the for, forefront, then my faith takes the backseat then I'm, I'm just not as effective. I'm not as good. I'm not as healthy. I'm not as uh, productive. I'm not, I just don't do as good a job. So uh, I think I'm a much better coach, a better friend, a better husband, a better whatever, if, uh, my, if I hold true to that. And you said this earlier, being authentic. You said it. I didn't. You did. And I agree with that. And that means if I believe something by faith, then and that it is my faith and it's what I believe, then I should be authentic to that. And so that's what makes a guy like Webb Simpson to me uh, sort of a hero. The guy, he, he says this, he walks it, he lives it. That's who he is. And probably to the detriment of his golf career at times. But, but I will say this, he, he's a man of faith. He believes it and he lives it. So that's probably how faith works for me. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Well, we, real quick, we have a fire round here. And okay. I'm just going to say something. You can finish the sentence however you want to <laughs> finish it. You can do anything if. If you think it's possible. Commitment means. Commitment means unwavering. Uh, hang on. Un, unwavering desire to get it right. Okay. Favorite vacation spot. Favorite vacation spot would probably <laughs> be Colorado. It's my wife's favorite. So does that make sense? That, yeah. Yeah. It makes complete sense. Uh, resilience is. Ability to overcome any obstacle. Your favorite golf experience? And that's kind of a broad question, but. Uh, I, I would say that year at Alabama, it was a golf experience. It was also transformational in life, but a favorite golf experience would have to be uh, getting to go back to Olympia Fields every year. It's one of my favorite places on earth in Chicago. Just 
it's just those people treat us so nice. I just love going back to that tournament. Awesome. It all comes down to. All comes down to uh, my motivation and my why for what I'm doing. It comes down to that. And essentially, if you're talking about this podcast and being a coach, it comes down to why in the world am I doing this? And then when I can figure that part out, I've got it. All right, we're done with the fire round so you can breathe. The last okay, two good. questions, the yep. last two questions we have for you. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, probably from my dad when I was 15 and I was upset about the golf lesson he was giving me. It wasn't helping. And he just turned around and walked toward the golf shop. And I, I said, dad, where are you going? And he said, son, when I start swinging the club, I'll start taking the blame. And he turned around. And he never said it again. We didn't talk about that until I was in my mid thirties. And it was like, you're responsible for this. You get it figured out because you can't, you don't, you don't ever give me credit when you win a trophy, but you always blame me when you're not playing well. So his advice was you need to, you need to take responsibility for that. That's great. So this podcast is called Building Excellence. What does building excellence mean to you? I think it's almost kind of like what you and I talked about a minute ago with better than I found it. Uh, excellence looks different on everybody and it looks different in every arena, but you know it when you see it. So, you know, I've loved being on here today because I don't think you're doing anything but trying to create excellence, identify excellence, uh, highlight excellence. And in our world, so many people are looking at things that aren't good in this world. And I think I, that's why I really appreciate it and, and, and did not hesitate to come on your podcast today is because what does it mean to me? It's just this world is better than it was. And I can identify it and I can highlight what excellence looks like. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Coach McGraw, thanks so much for coming on the show. You're a guy that exemplifies excellence as a coach, making a difference every single day. You know, the book you just talked about, Better Than I Found It, that is what you're doing, not just through your book and the podcast, but as a coach and making the difference in the lives of the guys that you coach. And obviously what you talked about before is just being a lifelong learner and, and having enthusiasm for what you're doing. And that affects not just, uh, you know, your staff and your players, but the people that get to be around you just like today for me uh it's been impactful so thank you so much for coming on the show absolutely buddy thank you so much for having me on this has been a pleasure it really has hey everyone it's bailey miles thanks again so much for tuning in we hope you found value in the show and if you enjoyed it we would really appreciate you sharing the show with a friend subscribing on apple or spotify podcast writing a quick review or leaving a five-star rating when you do that it really helps get the message out and allows more people to hear these stories and help them build excellence in their life, leadership, and legacy. If you have any questions, thoughts, or ideas, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me via email. It's bailey at baileymiles.com. Follow us on social. We're on all the different social platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Or check out our website at baileymiles.com. Once again, I'd love to hear from you, so definitely do that. And then thanks again for joining me on this journey. And remember, life begins at the end of your comfort zone.